of science and technology are the tools with which to achieve a new direction jackie fresco american futurist and social engineer welcome to a new episode of the researcher story an exploration into the science labs of india a conversation with some of our best minds where a scientist will finally get to be the hero of the show so francis craig uh, the molecular uh, molecular biologist from uh, britain and he's also neuro neurologist he said once that there's no scientific study more vital to man than the study of his own brain our entire view of the universe depends on it and so today we have with us someone who has dedicated his life towards understanding our brain and its vast complexity please welcome dr dipanjan roy associate professor and co-head of the cognitive brain dynamics lab national brain research center to the show welcome dr dipanjan it's a pleasure having you here yeah it's my pleasure suraj uh, to join you for this talk show uh, i am very glad you invited me to speak about various issues on brain science and current research going in my lab also you know across the globe Uh, so exactly. thank you very much yeah. thanks a lot dr dipanjan and you know uh, brain research is has always excited me a lot uh, as as a biotechnology it's it's kind of falls beyond the scope of what i have learned as 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 a biotechnologist and so you know my first question to you would be uh, how did you actually end up in the field of cognitive neuroscience and computational brain research right so what was your motivation yeah i think uh, it's a very interesting uh, you know question to begin with and it's a very kind of uh, complex question because i do not have a direct answer for it now that i look back actually to my personal journey to this field i uh, myself wondered that how did i actually ended up in this particular field of research which yeah. is still like you know kind of uh, Uh, not very well understood by many of the people who are uh, directly engaged with this area of research and far less well understood by people who are like you know uh, uh, reading popular novels or books about you know brain mysteries and uh, understanding of cognitive functions and cognitions and etc etc people exactly. do actually talk about you know artificial intelligence machine learning uh, you know science of intelligence in different forums in different platforms but i myself wonder sometimes like how did i end up here but the story is very interesting back in 2007 i was actually uh, working in particle physics or experimental particle physics okay. i was a uh, physicist by uh, all uh, all the kinds of trainings that i had before 2007 i uh, finished my masters in physics and ended up in us for doing my phd work and i was sent from there uh, to the one of the top laboratories in the world which is called cern uh, laboratory yeah. for kind of working on high energy physics in order to quest for the discovery of new particles and new physics and yeah. i started actually working on uh, theory called supersymmetry okay and to understand essentially like you know whether we can find in certain energy scales uh, particles which gives us fundamental attributes such as mass 
or energy and etc etc but the interesting part over there is like the part of my time when i spend in cern in a remote corner of geneva in the border of like you know france and switzerland i often get intrigued by the data that we got in our day to day functioning over there and in that data i found that you know many of the data kind of resembles uh, a lot of variability and noise okay. okay so the biggest challenge of that data was to essentially separate the noise from the data and to come up with a signal that actually kind of tells you that there is truly something existing and not necessarily masked by these noise okay and right. then i at the concurrent time like almost at the same time i was speaking with some of my uh, friends who made a journey into like neuroscience and brain research and they took up their career in that field because some of them were biologists some of them were physicists and those people often told me that the kind of data they get are very noisy okay no matter whatever is their recording device or their recording tools are okay and that intrigued me a lot because i found kind of a parallel between the field i was working in 2007 and the field that would be my future uh, dedicated area of research okay and uh, very interestingly i found an uncanny bridge and connections between these two areas i thought like the same kind of challenges are probably there in neuroscience as well and probably people are still not able to understand you know the processing and the functions of neurons and how the neurons essentially like you know communicate with each other in the same way in physics like we don't know how two particles essentially like you know interacts with each other in giving rise to a host of different uh, uh, kind of physical properties that we measure right, right. okay right. so so these measurement errors noise and these problems with like you know signal processing that was i think the first entry point for me to uh, try to understand these area of you know computational neuroscience or like you know cognitive neuroscience eventually i started reading actually books written by like you know prominent figures in neuroscience you mentioned about name of like you know francis crick and various other uh, stalwarts in the field okay i started picking up like book at that time from people like uh, professor ramachandran from ucsd and also like you know various other people who have written about the mysteries of the brain and that actually kind of suddenly uh, got me hooked up and attracted towards this field of research and uh, even though in physics i was finding very interesting uh discovery uh, paths and discovery ideas by working in a large kind of consortiums i sort of like you know thought that it would be probably more interesting if i can actually pursue a field where my individual contributions are recognized okay and that probably made me to switch the field very next year in 2008 to decide actually against all odds 
to move towards take up the challenge of moving to cognitive neuroscience where i didn't have any knowledge of it right okay but uh, yeah. it was very very interesting that i was very lucky that i i got support from uh, various people including my future phd supervisors and also like couple of friends who dedicated their uh, work in the neuroscience and neurobiology and they kind of were fully supportive in that period of time when i made this switch and transition from physics to actually biology okay but yeah, fortunately yeah. it all worked out so that like i you know i could end up in doing a phd work in uh, computational cognitive neuroscience yeah yeah you know uh, it's, it's actually very interesting when you say it's the noise factors that actually led you from physics to brain right so right, right. Uh, which is something which uh, which is very interesting because 97% or more than 90% of what we see around is is noise and it's it's that very very small part of it is actually the truth right but uh, decluttering that noise is so much important you know just in physics but even things about our brain um so uh, so then uh, you you came to i think uh, cnrs institute of systems neuroscience uh, france yeah so right? actually there was a there was a bit of uh, you know uh, transition uh, first i moved actually to us right. and i uh, went to uh, work in florida uh, there is a center for complex systems uh, in southern florida in boca raton near miami so the center for complex systems is part of the florida atlantic university so my uh, first phd thesis guy he was actually located over there he had a position in that center for complex systems so i started actually uh, working with him over there but like he moved his lab uh, by 2008 end in uh, you know systems neuroscience unit in marseille france okay. okay and and he gave me an option essentially to stay back in florida and do my research work over there and he would frequently visit and shuttle between florida and marseille uh, but i uh, decided against it simply because uh, when you are getting remotely supervised it's never easy okay and particularly you want to actually like use your phd guide as sort of like a springboard where you can come up with like new ideas and you discuss with the phd supervisor and he kind of you know works with you on the idea and let you move forward in your research direction and i thought like that would be bit difficult to do so therefore i decided actually even though there is a language barrier because you are going in france especially south of france and you have to learn actually french in order to kind of you know get by your day to day stuff i took the decision i took the hard decision of moving along with him uh, to set up his lab actually and uh, uh, i was among the first three people in his lab uh, who was located in france including one postdoc uh, myself one first year phd student and there was another first year phd student from greece so three of us actually were the first member of his lab in france back in 2008 very <laughs> right, that's, that's very interesting so and then uh, what was the kind of work that you started off over there 
so first when i moved over there he was located uh, in a beautiful location actually it was south of france as you know like you know it's like surrounded by these white marble rocks uh, near the sea coast so you could kind of frequently even go to the coast and see the sea coast from our laboratory buildings okay and it was very sunny uh, very nicely located uh, except the fact that i was totally uh, in a culture shock because i didn't know uh, you know how how to kind of uh, get used to with that culture but fortunately because i spend my time in switzerland which is actually uh, you know part of the france territory especially, especially geneva so i got used to with that french culture a little bit by then already okay so so that helped me a little bit and the work first time we started over there is to understand essentially human motor control because our lab was uh, working or especially my phd supervisor was supremely interested in motor coordination so for example uh, he was interested in understanding uh, how do we plan movement how do we actually reach uh, to our targets for example like when you are grabbing a glass of water how does your visual system and motor system essentially coordinates with each other in order to actually complete a visual motor integration and allow you to like uh, pick up your glass or the target from a particular location and then kind of keep it back in the same location so how do you actually achieve these efficacy of the motor control is what he was interested in so the my first project where i started actually working on is to understand how different neural networks actually interacts with each other why are there you know well coordinated synchronization behavior in order to achieve like motor control and coordination right. okay so which kind of slowly uh moved into another direction that i will tell you later but like uh, initially we started understanding how coordination between different groups of muscles our brain and the neurons in located in the brain in motor areas specifically cross talks and communicates with each other in order to achieve a particular type of action and coordinated behavior yeah right 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 yeah um so uh, you know working 5 years uh, in france uh, how was the decision to move back to india like you know what are the challenges that you faced uh, i i worked actually in france for uh, as you mentioned like for 4 to 5 years and then eventually i also moved from france to germany and i spent actually 3 uh, and 1/2 years of my postdoc work in germany and Uh, i also was part of a german us collaboration uh, so i had to spend some time at mit in boston in usa so i also spent some time over there in uh, one of the systems neuroscience lab who are working on human and animal vision okay to understand essentially like how we see uh, what are the neural plasticity in our visual systems how does the neurons in the visual areas essentially process color images objects and etc etc okay so i think it was a kind of all round experience in my case which is uh, going from european 
cultures to like moving back to us and then again coming from us to european culture so i was not kind of fixed in one location okay right. uh, for a long period of time maybe for 3 to 4 years but not beyond that okay right. so therefore uh, moving from you know any place in the world uh, to go back to my like home country and get the opportunity to start my own lab was always there in one corner of my mind but right. also like many other researchers in my field from india who actually decided to move back to india partly also because of their family and personal uh, reasons okay right. so for me also family was very important to be able to like you know work in a professional setup set up my own lab and also guide uh, you know future students to move in a particular field based on my understanding and experience which i could share with them and at the same time kind of live in my home country where my family is was the biggest motivation to move back here yeah right right so uh, uh, did the uh, i mean were you also getting the ramalinga swami fellowship was that how you were able to enter the country back like how yeah. was the process so, so the thing is that uh, i was looking for you know regular jobs uh, in different institutes in india when once i made a decision to return and then uh, i found out actually from some of the people uh, in my nexus that there is a you know uh, young investigators meeting in biosciences okay. which is typically organized by the department of biotechnology in collaboration with other funding agencies like welcome and others so the meeting was held in hyderabad uh, in 2014 so i came as a senior postdoctoral research scientist and got actually accepted in that young investigators meeting to present my work and also to discuss the possibilities of opportunities that exist in india and there were many researchers from various institutes and their representative bodies like the directors vice chancellors of various institutes and universities in india and also national labs they started actually giving us a picture of like what all opportunities are there in their institutes so immediately i kind of saw that there is some opportunities already there in order to return to india but probably returning to india and setting up a lab and working uh, on your own ideas uh, you know get boosted if you can get some kind of independent fellowship independent money okay which can serve as sort of like a seed grant in order to start up your lab it's like a startup money okay right. so i applied for uh, both ramanujan and ramalingaswami uh, fellowship these two fellowships were uh, kind of supporting the kind of work that we do or the right. kind of work i am interested in so i applied for these and both were successful and i eventually took the ramalingaswami fellowship in order to kind of uh, look for uh, returning to india and getting hosted by some of the institutes so first institute that actually showed a lot of interest uh, in my work is triple uh, iit hyderabad because uh, we were interested in understanding uh, you know computational neuroscience 
as well as like you know artificial intelligence and those kind of areas and tripulati hyderabad is kind of a offbeat institute because it had basically many uh, you know computer scientists who were working in the area of machine learning computer vision uh, advanced statistics as well as like you know many scientists who were interested in cognitive science research so they basically like you know hosted me but like by that time i already kind of got a secured a regular position as an assistant professor over there in tripulati hyderabad so i took the assistant professor position uh, over there along with that i uh, took my ramalinga sami fellowship to support my own lab and be able to you know develop my lab successfully okay yeah. uh, so uh, so yeah. that was my first entry back to india okay. right 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 yeah. so how did the move to nbrc uh, happen and you know so nbrc uh, happened in a very again a very interesting way and it kind of uh, has a very uh, similar trajectory like my previous journey uh, mm-hmm. same like in hyderabad i was uh, working uh, you know on some uh, problems that actually uh, were uh, required some collaborative work so in nbrc there was uh, some uh, collaborators who were working on similar set of areas so we exchanged ideas and we thought like you know uh, since nbrc is a full fledged experimental uh, setup uh, and it's a national lab and a big institute so uh, probably doing certain experiments in nbrc would be far more easier for example if we are interested in understanding like how the brain areas control for memory uh, language speech processing and etc etc and some of these answers can be revealed uh, only by doing like uh, brain scanning right so we need a, a functional mri or what is known as magnetic resonance imaging and nbrc had one Uh, so we thought like you know let us forge a collaboration with some of the labs who are working on functional neuroimaging or like with magnetic resonance imaging and we wrote up some grant together and we like you know uh, decided to move on this area of understanding what we call speech processing or multisensory speech processing and also understanding how with age actually you know this speech processing or memory processing essentially gets uh, cognitively challenged so with that uh, we were thinking like okay how to best move our collaborations together okay and uh, as you know uh, one of my good friend and collaborator dr arpan banerji he was uh, uh, you know Uh, co-directing he is now co-directing this cognitive brain dynamics lab here at nbrc and we uh, kind of together decided that it would be probably a very good idea if we can be in the same place same location uh, doing a research uh, on both computational and also on cognitive neuroscience and if we can somehow have that opportunity then both of us together and with along with other researchers we can kind of address questions that are in basic neuroscience and also have application in translational neuroscience or clinical neuroscience because nbrc do get actually you know patients from aims and you know other hospitals so mm-hmm. 
uh, we decided uh, that whether there is such opportunity around the corner and luckily in 2017 i uh, got an opportunity because there was an opening in nbrc so i kind of decided to move my lab again and move to basically nbrc uh, in order to set up a computational cognitive neuroscience lab here. yeah right yeah yeah so i actually want to talk about this lab now because uh, it's it's uh, it's a very interesting field and interesting thing that you work on it so uh from the basics so what would uh, how would you define cognitive neuroscience and if you can just uh, explain the work that you do in your lab sure uh i think uh, like many other field in neuroscience it's hard to kind of have a you know uh, summarize everything in one single sentence but generally if you like look at the name itself cognitive neuroscience is kind of study of cognitive functions okay so we study essentially uh, uh, some very specific attribute of our day to day uh, life such as memory uh, then attention perception and also like sensory processing like visual motor auditory processing like i am speaking with you right now on this talk show and you are basically listening to what i am saying and i am also listening to your questions and what you are saying whenever we actually hear each other there are specific areas of the brain which kind of gets light up in this process and those are the areas essentially are known as domain specific areas these domains are basically known as like you know auditory domains or visual domains depending on the kind of sensory inputs that we receive in our day to day life so in our lab we cannot do this kind of naturalistic setup easily but we do basically an experimental laboratory based uh, stimulus creation where the stimulus resembles a lot of the natural sensory environment and mm. we use these stimulus in order to understand actually how human participants essentially respond to those stimuli okay how do they behave how do they uh, understand those stimuli and this kind of gives us a glimpse of like how uh, behaviorally uh, certain features of the stimuli is processed by individuals okay really? then we ask then we ask well they are behaving in this kind of goal directed manner where the experimenter given them some goals to complete a task they complete that task but with differences in their speed of completing the task or with the precision in which they can complete the task so we ask where is this precision and where is how much of the errors that these participants are making in their behavior and what are the you know neural correlates of these errors and these behavioral responses that these participants are actually uh, carrying out in the laboratory environmental conditions then right. then once we understand these we go beyond these laboratory environmental conditions we try to create like you know naturalistic setup like for example uh, you ask people to participate in your experiments and watch a movie clip okay and while they are you know watching a movie clip there is a host of change in their emotional saliency 
and how they are basically you know looking at the happy scenes in the movie or sad scenes in the movie so we are asking the questions like you know what are the brain areas essentially controls these different you know uh, qualia of emotions or different types of emotions and are the same brain areas are visible in all the different individuals or there is a huge amount of individual variability and idiosyncrasy associated with their behavior so these are basically the fundamental questions that cognitive neuroscientists are typically trying to understand in their day to day life yeah right interesting so dr uh, uh, quick question can you give us some interesting insights that you found in your life you know as a as a very layman if you you know if if i have to understand okay why do i make certain why did i make a decision to talk to you today what would your answer be oh yeah yeah i i i think first of all it has to be because you asked this question why did you uh, why why on the first place as to why on the first place you were interested in order to you know invite me on the talk show okay so uh, there could be multiple factors and reasons for that but one factor typically which we have noticed in laboratory experimental settings and we have identified is basically like you know the saliency of the uh, finding so a saliency is something like a very simple example like i am giving my uh, speech during your talk show or responding to your questions and suddenly a phone call comes okay and my attention gets reoriented towards that phone call okay so in this case this phone call is basically a salient distractor it distracts me from the goal that is in front of me okay so when you do an experiments often this situation comes that you present a particular color or a particular location of an object or a particular you know uh, uh picture uh, of some individuals which is very salient for that particular participants and therefore their attention or focus of attention essentially shifts from the task at hand towards something else but you suddenly realize that that was not supposed to do i needed to actually respond to your answer so my attention reorients back to my task okay what i need to actually do at this point of current point of time okay so a part of the human brain uh, or a part of the human brain is always been interested in kind of these magnitude of the saliency and its effect and understanding it because our sensory processing in day to day life actually is driven by these aspects okay the size of something being bigger or smaller the color being very bright or color being very dim okay mm-hmm. so all these things are very very important for our day to day survival right so if we miss these cues if we miss these sensory cues these may lead to even like you know dangerous situation in our life for example like when you are driving on the road if you are not careful enough and if you are not like looking at the sensory cues that is offered by your environment you may end up in accident right okay so that is one answer to what actually led you to for example inviting me probably in this talk show 
or other guest is because there is some saliency associated with our research or our research work or the kind of work we do which attracted you as a human being or an individual and as a result of which you were kind of you know uh, more interested in finding out more from like the horse's mouth okay yeah yeah i would never have guessed that reason for sure <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah it's very interesting and you know once uh, once you do this research and you know figure out these are the reasons the next question that typically comes up is this is this is very important data about human mind right uh, it's also a responsibility i feel uh, as to how you use this data right uh, in terms of you know what can you do with this particular data now that you know how humans uh, behave we all seen the movies you know you manipulate the human being human mind in such a way that you know you can just use that uh, human in the way you want but uh, has uh, how, how does the ethical side of you know knowing these this kind of information uh, you know plays a part in your research uh, this is supremely important question and i think uh, there are you know three sides of it like one side is that i am a day to day life i am a researcher okay right and i do my research i am attached to my laboratory my students and i work on a project uh, and i try to be as unbiased as possible from my you know observations and try to kind of uh, report my observations or communicate these observations in terms of like writing uh grants writing papers uh for the research collaborations the other part of it is basically the human side okay so if you look at you know some people specifically like when you are studying like mental disorders okay uh, or studying patients with depressions okay and you are trying to figure out like same kind of questions as i just now mentioned couple of minutes back that how do they actually allocate their attention Uh, how are their memory uh, system working in the brain okay uh, whether they are actually having the same kind of emotions that we have or are they different in terms of their emotion processing so research question wise understanding wise you can get a as you rightly mentioned like you can get a very rich understanding of broad gamut or spectrum of human behavior on the other side of it like how you use these data uh, how you take the ownership of these data and being completely ethical in terms of your approach uh, for kind of keeping uh, everything uh, anonymized and not kind of you know uh, uh, harming somebody like in the process of doing these research because uh, neuroethics question i am not a neuroethics researcher but neuroethics question is first and foremost typically like we train informally to all our students that yeah. a part of the research is whenever you collect actually data from the participants you have to actually take their informed consent you have right. to you have to realize that when a participant or a human subject essentially is volunteering to give their data to you it is completely their willingness to do that and we cannot essentially force anyone to do that, 
Okay. So right. at any point of time during the experiments, they feel inconvenient and they decide to quit. Uh, we are very happy uh, to let them go because, you know, you have to also understand somebody's privacy, somebody's personal space and somebody's actually freedom and willingness to, uh, you know, uh, be ready to participate in your experiments for the greater good of mankind, okay? But that does not necessarily mean you as a researcher can exploit this situation uh, in your favor and for your, uh, you know, uh, advantage, okay? So I think we try to be as mindful as possible, but as you know, like human uh, uh, makes errors, everybody uh, kind of, uh, yeah, nowadays at least, uh, double careful that they do not make such errors, okay, when they are right. actually conducting, specifically as you mentioned, like, you know, human research, because it is a valuable data, it will lead to understanding of, like, probably, you know, different types of neurodegenerative and neuropsychiatric disorders and symptoms in the next, uh, you know, 10, 20 years. But that does not necessarily mean that you kind of use this data or like this understanding to somebody's disadvantage. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's a huge responsibility, and I completely agree with what you were what you were trying to say over there. Uh, so you know, before we finish up, I just wanted to know. Uh, you know, it's not easy to get become a researcher, right? Uh, it it comes with daily challenges. Uh, I just wanted to know how, how as a neuroscience uh, person, a researcher, uh, how do you cope with all the daily challenges that you have, you know, all these um, failures that you face? Uh, I'm sure on a daily basis, there will be a lot of experience which fail. So how do you how do you face those things and how do you overcome those things as a researcher? Yeah, the, thanks for asking that question. I think the failures are actually more than the success. Absolutely. And, uh, I think... Uh, mm, those who haven't failed or those who haven't actually, uh, you know, uh, gave up uh, at times, they are never going to learn actually like, you know, uh, what really to cherish and uh, embrace. So in my opinion, actually, most of the new researchers or like budding researchers or young researchers, need to know that, uh, you know, failure is absolutely acceptable and there is no uh, problem in failing to understand something because uh, unless we, you know, fail in uh, not getting, you know, uh, the desired expected results, we never actually get the results that is unexpected, right? Yeah. Right. So to get the unexpected not anticipated results, sometimes I think failing is the most important option, <laughs> in my opinion. And especially for day-to-day, -day, in our research, we uh, kind of play around with a lot of ideas. Uh, I personally, myself, when I'm, there is not a single moment when, when I am completely detached from work. People sometimes say like, you know, you have this work life and then you have your personal space, but in a researcher's life, the work and the ideas and the thoughts, these are continuously actually kind of evolving in your mind, continually getting actually, uh, you know, 
uh, intermingled with other thoughts and it's there it's always there like i'm thinking about one problem that i could not solve for like you know last one week or more okay and suddenly uh, out of the, the blues comes a solution okay so i think trying to think about various things while you failed in something okay uh, in doing certain things in a certain uh, way uh, is actually a good thing to move towards another type of solution because if you have to come up with a out of the box solution and think something alternatively you need to actually realize that if you go in a particular direction you are probably not going to get a success okay so you need to sometime like you know if needed to uh, change your reference frame sometimes you need to move away from what you are actually uh, practicing and then uh, or what is the conventional path and sometimes when you become like little bit of unconventional you find a great solution sometimes okay for your problems so i think that would be my suggestions that don't be afraid of going into unconventional routes and unconventional paths simply because you are against the way of thinking because the way if you follow these unconventional path you not only find one way of solving the problem sometimes you find a very new things and new uh, area where people have not actually touched upon okay so i think that is probably would be my advice however it's very difficult to advise because everybody's kind of you know thinking and research experience and day to day you know what uh people are different so there is uh, you you unique you know uh, there is no one way of like you know defining it there is always like unique ways discovered by people but in my opinion failure is absolutely a key to understanding like you know uh, what actually is more valued yes and that coming from a neuroscience researcher i think we all can take it on face value for sure because i am sure there is some level of data to support that claim so uh, yeah i think uh, it's it's been an absolute ple- pleasure dr dipanjan to talk to you uh, and uh, yeah and we've learned a lot uh, i'm sure as i mean personally i've learned a lot uh, uh that you know how in a day to day basis how our brain works and how cognitive functions really take place uh, and uh, i'm sure a lot of our listeners will will benefit from uh, the insights that you've given us today and we'll look forward to you know know more about your work read more about your work and in in future if possible also work along with you uh, i i wish that uh, you know you do amazing level of you know research in your lab and uh, you know wish you all success in your in your future future works uh, thank you very much suraj it was a, a wonderful time with you uh, last uh, 45 minutes and i i really enjoyed this session and hopefully we get in touch yeah definitely okay. definitely yeah thanks a lot okay. uh, dr dipanjan have a good day bye bye yeah yeah you have a good day too bye